Chapter Four of the Hidden Places. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Hidden Places by Bertrand W. Sinclair. Chapter Four. The steamer backed away from a float of which Hollister was the sole occupant. She swung in a wide semicircle, pointed her bluff bow down the inlet, and presently. All that he could see of her was the tip of her masts over a jutting point and the top of her red funnel trailing a pennant of smoke, black against a gray sky. Hollister stood looking about him. He was clad like a logger, in thick mackinaws and heavy boots, and the texture of his garments was appropriate to the temperature, the weather. He seemed to have stepped into another latitude, which, in truth, he had for the head of Toba Inlet lies a hundred and fifty miles northwest of Vancouver, and the thrust of that narrow arm of the sea carries it thirty miles into the glacial fastnesses of the coast range. The rain that drenched Vancouver became snow here. The lower slopes were green with timber which concealed the drifts that covered the rocky soil. A little higher certain clear spaces bared the whiteness, and all the treetops, the drooping boughs, carried a burden of clinging snow. Higher still lifted grim peaks, capped with massive snowbanks that even midsummer heat could never quite dispel. But these upper heights were now hidden in clouds and wraiths of frost fog, their faces shrouded in this winter veil which, except for rare bursts of sunshine or sweeping northwest wind, would not be lifted till the vernal equinox. It was very cold and very still, as if winter had laid a compelling silence on everything in the land. Except the faint slapping of little waves against the ice-encrusted rocky shore and the distant harsh voices of some wheeling gulls, there was no sound or echo of a sound as he stood listening. Yet Hollister was not oppressed by this chill solitude. In that setting, silence was appropriate. It was merely unexpected. For so long, Hollister had lived amid blaring noises. The mechanical thunder and lightning of the war, the rumble of industry, the shuffle and clatter of crowds. He had forgotten what it was like to be alone, and in the most crowded places he had suffered the most grievous loneliness. For the time being he was unconscious of his mutilation, since there was no one by to remind him by look or act. He was only aware of a curious interest in what he saw, a subdued wonder at the majestic beauty and the profound hush as if he had been suddenly transferred from a place where life was maddeningly, distractingly clamorous to a spot where life was mute. The head of Toba is neither a harbor nor a bay. One turns out of the island-studded Gulf of Georgia into an arm of the sea a mile in breadth. The cliffs and mountains grow higher, more precipitous mile by mile, until the inlet becomes a chasm with the salt water for its floor. On past frowning points, around slow curves, 
boring farther and farther into the mainland through a passage like a huge tunnel, the roof of which has been blown away. Then suddenly there is an end to the sea. Abruptly a bend is turned, and great mountains bar the way, peaks that lift from tidewater to treeless heights, formidable ranges bearing upon their rocky shoulders the lingering remains of a glacial age. The inlet ends there, the seaway barred by these frowning declivities. Hollister remembered the head of Toba after a fashion. He had the lay of the land in his mind. He had never seen it in midwinter, but the snow, the misty vapors drifting along the mountainsides, did not confuse him. From the float he now perceived two openings in the mountain chain. The lesser, coming in from the northwest, was little more than a deep and narrow gash in the white-clad hills. On his right opened the broader valley of the Toba River, up which he must go. For a space of perhaps five minutes Hollister stood gazing about him. Then he was reminded of his immediate necessities by the chill that crept over his feet, for several inches of snow overlaid the planked surface of the landing float. Knowing what he was about when he left Vancouver, Hollister had brought with him a twenty-foot Hudson's Bay freight canoe, a capacious shoal-water craft with high topsides. He slid this off the float, loaded into it sundry boxes and packages, and taking his seat astern, paddled inshore to where the rising tide was ruffled by the outsetting current of a river. Here, under the steep shoulder of a mountain, rows of piles stood gaunt above the tide-flats. When Hollister had last seen the mouth of the Toba, those same piles had been the support of long boom-sticks, within which floated hundreds of logs. On the flat beside the river there had stood the rough shacks of a logging camp. Donkey engines were puffing and grunting in the woods. Now the booming ground was empty, save for those decaying, Torito-eaten sticks, and the camp was tumble-down ruin when he passed. He wondered if the valley of the Toba were wholly deserted, if the forests of virgin timber covering the delta of that watercourse had been left to their ancient solitude. But he did not stop to puzzle over this. In ten minutes he was over the sandy bar at the river's mouth, the sea was hidden behind him. He passed up a sluggish waterway lined by alder and maple, covered with dense thickets, a jumble in which flourished the stalwart salmonberry and the thorny sticks of the devil's club. Out of this maze of undergrowth rose the tall brown columns of Douglas fir, of red cedar, of spruce and hemlock with their drooping boughs. Sloughs branched off in narrow laterals, sheeted with thin ice, except where the current kept it open, and out of these open patches flocks of wild ducks scattered with a whir of wings. A mile upstream he turned a bend and passed a Siwash rancheria. The bright eyes of little brown-faced children peered shyly out at him from behind stumps. 
he could see rows of split salmon hung by the tail to the beams of an open-fronted smokehouse. Around another bend he came on a buck deer standing knee-deep in the water, and at the sight of him the animal snorted, leaped up the bank, and vanished as silently as a shadow. Hollister marked all these things without ceasing to ply his paddle. His objective lay some six miles upstream. But when he came at last to the upper limit of the tidal reach, he found in this deep, slack water new-driven piling and freshly strung boomsticks and acres of logs confined therein, also a squat motor tugboat and certain lesser craft moored to these timbers. A little back from the bank he could see the roofs of buildings. He stayed his paddle a second to look with a mild curiosity. Then he went on. That human craving for companionship, which had gained no response in the cities of two continents, had left him for the time being. For that hour he was himself, sufficient unto himself. Here probably a score of men lived and worked, but they were not men he knew. They were not men who would care to know him, not after a clear sight of his face. Hollister did not say that to himself in so many words. He was only subconsciously aware of this conclusion. Nevertheless, it guided his actions. Through long, bitter months, he had rebelled against spiritual isolation. The silent woods, the gray river, the cloud-wrapped hills seemed friendly by comparison with mankind, mankind which had marred him and now shrank from its handiwork. So he passed by this community in the wilderness, not because he wished to, but because he must. Within half a mile he struck fast water, long straight reaches up which he gained ground against the current by steady strokes of the paddle, shallows where he must wade and lead his craft by hand. So he came at last to the big bend of the Toba River, a great S-curve, where the stream doubled upon itself in a mile-wide flat that had been stripped of its timber and lay now an unlovely vista of stumps, each with a white cap of snow. On the edge of this, where the river swung to the southern limit of the valley and ran under a cliff that lifted a thousand foot sheer, he passed a small house. Smoke drifted blue from the stovepipe. A pile of freshly chopped firewood lay by the door. The dressed carcass of a deer hung under one projecting eave, between two stumps, a string of laundered clothes waved in the downriver breeze. By the garments, Hollister knew a woman must be there, but none appeared to watch him pass. He did not halt, although the short afternoon was merging into dusk, and he knew the hospitality of those who go into lonely places to wrest a living from an untamed land but he could not bear the thought of being endured rather than welcomed. He had suffered enough of that. He was in full retreat from just that attitude. He was growing afraid of contact with people, and he knew why he was afraid. 
When the long twilight was nearly spent, he gained the upper part of the big bend and hauled his canoe out on the bank. A small flat ran back to the mouth of a canyon, and through the flat trickled a stream of clear water. Hollister built a fire on a patch of dry ground at the base of a six-foot fir. He set up his tent, made his bed, cooked his supper, sat with his feet to the fire, smoking a pipe. After four years of clamor and crowds, he marveled at the astonishing contentment which could settle on him here in this hushed valley, where silence rested like a fog. His fire was a red spot with a yellow nimbus. Beyond that ruddy circle, valley and cliff and clouded sky merged into an impenetrable blackness. Hollister had been cold and wet and hungry. Now he was warm and dry and fed. He lay with his feet stretched to the fire. For the time he almost ceased to think, relaxed as he was into a pleasant animal well-being, and so presently he fell asleep. In winter, north of the forty-ninth parallel, and especially in those deep clefts like the Toba, dusk falls at four in the afternoon, and day has not grown to its full strength at nine in the morning. Hollister had finished his breakfast before the first gleam of light touched the east. When day let him see the alpine crevasses that notched the northern wall of the valley, he buckled on a belt that carried a sheath axe, took up his rifle, and began, first of all, a cursory exploration of the flat on which he camped. It seemed to him that in some mysterious way he was beginning his life all over again, that life which his reason, with cold, inexorable logic, had classified as a hopeless ruin. He could not see wherein the ruin was lessened by embarking upon this lone adventure into the outlying places. Nevertheless, something about it had given a fillip to his spirits. He felt that he would better not inquire too closely into this, that too keen self-analysis was the evil from which he had suffered and which he should avoid. But he said to himself that if he could get pleasure out of so simple a thing as a canoe trip in a lonely region, there was hope for him yet. And in the same breath, he wondered how long he could be sustained by that illusion. He had a blueprint of the area covering the Big Bend. That timber limit which he had lightly purchased long ago, and which unaccountably went begging a purchaser, lay south and a bit west from where he set up his camp. He satisfied himself of that by the blueprint and the staking description. The northeast corner stake should stand not a great way back from the river bank. He had to find a certain particularly described cedar tree, thence make his way south to a low cliff, at one extreme of which he should find a rock cairn with a squared post in its center. From that he could run his boundary lines with a pocket compass until he located the three remaining corners. Hollister found cedars enough, but none that pointed the way to a low cliff and a rock cairn. He ranged here and there, 
and at last went up the hillside which rose here so steeply as to be stiff climbing. It bore here and there a massive tree, rough-barked pillars rising to a branchy head two hundred feet in the air. But for the most part the slope was clothed with scrubby hemlock and thickets of young fir and patches of hazel, out of which he stirred a great many grouse and once a deer. But if he found no stakes to show him the boundaries of his property, he gained the upper rim of the high cliff which walled the southern side of the big bend, and all the valley opened before him. Smoke lifted in a pale spiral from the house below his camp. Abreast of the log boom he had passed in the river, he marked the roofs of several buildings, and back of the clearings in the logged-over land opened white squares against the dusky green of the surrounding timber. He perceived that a considerable settlement had arisen in the lower valley, that the forest was being logged off, that land was being cleared and cultivated. There was nothing strange in that. All over the earth, the growing pressure of population forced men continually to invade the strongholds of the wilderness. Here lay fertile acres, water, forest to supply timber, the highway of the sea to markets. Only labor, patient, unremitting labor, was needed to shape all that great valley for cultivation. Cleared and put to the plow, it would produce abundantly. A vast, fecund area out of which man, withdrawing from the hectic pressure of industrial civilization, could derive sustenance, if he possessed sufficient hardihood to survive such hardships and struggle as his forefathers had for their common lot. Hollister ranged the lower part of the hillside until hunger drove him back to camp. And as it sometimes happens that what a man fails to come upon when he seeks with method and intent, he stumbles upon by accident. So now Hollister, coming heedlessly downhill, found the corner stake he was seeking. With his belt-axe, he blazed a trail from this point to the flat below, so that he could find it again. He made no further explorations that afternoon. He spent a little time in making his camp comfortable in ways known to any outdoor man. But when day broke clear the following morning, he was on the hill, compass in hand, bearing due west from the original stake. He found the second without much trouble. He ran a line south and east and north again, and so returned to his starting point by noon, with two salient facts outstanding in his mind. The first was that he suspected himself of having bought a poke which contained a pig of doubtful value. This, if true, made plain the difficulty of resale, and made him think decidedly unpleasant things of Lewis and Company, specialists in B.C. timber. The second was that someone, within recent years, had cut timber on his limit. And it was his timber. The possessive sense was fairly strong in Hollister, as it usually is in men who have ever possessed any considerable property, he did not like the idea of being cheated or robbed. In this case, 
there was superficial evidence that both these things had happened to him. So, when he had cooked himself a meal and smoked a pipe, he took to the high ground again, to verify or disprove these unwelcome conclusions. In that huge and largely inaccessible region, which is embraced within the boundaries of British Columbia, in a land where the industrial lifeblood flows chiefly along two railways and three navigable streams, there are many great areas where the facilities of transportation are much as they were when British Columbia was a field exploited only by trappers and traders. Settlement is still but a fringe upon the borders of the wilderness. Individuals and corporations own land and timber which they have never seen, sources of material wealth acquired cheaply, with an eye to the future. Beyond the railway belts, the navigable streams, the coastwise passages where steamers come and go, there lies a vast hinterland where canoe and pack-sack are still the mainstay of the traveler. In this almost primeval region, the large-handed fashion of primitive transactions is still in vogue. Men traffic in timber and mineral stakings on the word of other men. The coastal slopes and valleys are dotted with timber claims which have been purchased by men and corporations in Vancouver and New York and London and Paris and Berlin, bought and traded sight unseen as small boys swap jackknives. There flourishes in connection with this, on the Pacific coast, the business of cruising timber, a vocation followed by hardy men prepared to go anywhere, any time, in fair weather or foul, commission such a man to fare into such a place, cruise such and such areas of timberland described by meets and bounds. This resourceful surveyor-explorer will disappear. In the fullness of weeks he will return, bearded and travel-worn. He will place in your hands a report containing an estimate of so many million feet of standing fir, cedar, spruce, hemlock, with a description of the topography, an opinion on the difficulty or ease of the logging chance. On the British Columbia coast, a timber cruiser's report comes in the same category as a bank statement or a chartered accountant's audit of books. That is to say, it is unquestionable, an authentic statement of fact. Within the boundaries defined by the four stakes of the limit Hollister owned, there stood, according to the original cruising estimate, eight million feet of merchantable timber, half fir, half red cedar. The Douglas fir covered the rocky slopes, and the cedar lined the gut of a deep hollow which split the limit midway. It was classed as a fair logging chance, since from that corner which dipped into the flats of the Toba, a donkey engine with its mile-long arm of steel cable could snatch the logs down to the river, whence they would be floated to the sea and towed to the Vancouver sawmills. Hollister had been guided by the custom of the country. He had put a surplus fund of cash into this property in the persuasion that it would resell at a profit, or that it could ultimately be logged at a still greater profit. 
and this persuasion rested upon the cruising estimate and the uprightness of Lewis and Company, specialists in B.C. timber, investments, etc. But Hollister had a practical knowledge of timber himself, acquired at first hand. He had skirted his boundaries and traversed the fringes of his property, and he saw scrubby, undersized trees where the four-foot trunks of Douglas fir should have lifted in brown ranks. He had looked into the bisecting hollow from different angles and marked magnificent cedars, but too few of them. Taken with the fact that Lewis had failed to resell even at a reduced price, when standing timber had doubled in value since the beginning of the war, Hollister had grave doubts, which, however, he could not establish until he went over the ground and made a rough estimate for himself. This other matter of timber cutting was one he could settle in short order. It roused his curiosity. It gave him a touch of the resentment which stirs a man when he suspects himself of being the victim of pillaging vandals. No matter that despair had recently colored his mental vision, the sense of property right still functioned unimpaired. To be marred and impoverished and shunned as if he were a monstrosity were accomplished facts which had weighed upon him an intolerable burden. He forgot that now. There was nothing much here to remind him. He was free to react to this new sense of outrage, this new evidence of mankind's essential unfairness. In the toll taken of his timber by these unwarranted operations, there was little to grieve over, he discovered before long. He had that morning found and crossed, after a long curious inspection, a chute which debouched from the middle of his limit and dipped towards the river bottom, apparently somewhere above his camp. He knew that this shallow trough built of slender poles was a means of conveying shingle bolts from the site of cutting to the water that should float them to market. Earlier he had seen signs of felling among the cedars, but only from a distance. He was not sure he had seen right until he discovered the chute. So now he went back to the chute and followed its winding length until it led into the very heart of the cedars in the hollow. Two or three years had elapsed since the last tree was felled. Nor had there ever been much inroad on the standing timber. Someone had begun operations there and abandoned the work before enough timber had been cut to half repay the labor of building that long chute. Nor was that all. In the edge of the workings, the branches and litter of harvesting those hoary old cedars had been neatly cleared from a small level space, and on this space, bold against the white carpet of snow, stood a small log house. Hollister pushed open the latched door and stepped into the musty desolation of long-abandoned rooms. It was neatly made, floored with split cedar, covered by a tight roof of cedar shakes. Its tiny-paned windows were still intact. Within, it was divided into two rooms, 
There was no stove, and there had never been a stove. A rough fireplace of stone served for cooking. An iron bar crossed the fireplace, and on this bar still hung the fire-blackened pothooks. On nails and shelves against the wall, pans still hung, and dishes stood thick with dust. On a homemade bunk in one corner lay a mattress which the rats had converted to their own uses, just as they had played havoc with papers scattered about the floor and the oilcloth on the table. Hollister passed into the other room. This had been a bedroom, a woman's bedroom. He guessed that by the remnants of fabric hanging over the windows, as well as by a skirt and sunbonnet, which still hung from a nail. Here, too, was a bedspread with a rat-ruined mattress, and upon a shelf over the bed was ranged a row of books, perhaps two dozen volumes, which the rats had somehow respected, except for sundry gnawing at the bindings. Hollister took one down. He smiled. That is to say, his eyes smiled and his features moved a little out of their rigid cast. Fancy finding the Kant of August Strindberg, the dramatist, that genius of subtle perception and abysmal gloom, here in this forsaken place. Hollister fluttered the pages. Writing on the flyleaf caught his eye. There was a date, and below that, Doris Cleveland, her book. He took down the others, one by one an Iliad, a hardy novel, The Way of All Flesh, between Kim and the Pilgrim Fathers, a volume of Swinburne rubbing shoulders with a California poet who sang of gibbous moons, The Ancient Lowly, cheek by jowl with Two Years Before the Mast, a Catholic collection with strong meat sandwiched between some of the rat-nod covers, and each bore on the fly-leaf the inscription of the first, written in a clear, firm hand. Doris Cleveland, her book. Hollister put the last volume back in place and stood staring at the row. Who was Doris Cleveland, and why had she left her books to the rats? He gave over his wonder at the patently unanswerable, went out into the living room, glanced casually over that once more, and so to the outside, where the snow crisped under his feet now that the sun had withdrawn behind the hills. About the slashed area where the cedars had fallen, over stumps and broken branches and the low roof of the cabin, the virgin snow laid its softening whiteness, and the tall trees enclosed the spot with living green. A hidden squirrel broke out with brisk scolding, a small chirruping voice in a great silence. Here men had lived and worked and gone their way again. The forest remained as it was before. The thickets would soon arise to conceal man's handiwork. Hollister shook off this fleeting impression of man's impermanence and turned downhill lest dark catch him in the heavy timber and make him lose his way. 
End of chapter 4. Recording by Roger Moline.